Welcome to Screen Talk, a new weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, and normally I'd be joined by our editor at large, Ann Thompson, but she's using this small window of time in between the end of the first nomination voting period for the Oscars and Oscar nomination morning to get some much needed R and R. So I'm I'm very happy to have our guest today, Tom. Brueggemann, our box office analyst, who some listeners may recall from previous episodes, because Tom, it's it's great to have you here. First of all, welcome. Thanks for coming back. I know it went great well be before. Yeah, so we're really happy to have you because uh, we're living through such a strange period in terms of box office and exhibition. And so every few months brings a new stage of the conversation. But one of the things that I think is really important to talk about now is that every time we sort of circle back on the conversation about the future of movie going, it seems like attitudes have shifted a little bit. And there's, this is not a, it is a fluid situation that often seems quite dire, but movie theaters do seem to be opening. And last Friday, New York City uh, got its green light to reopen and we we're seeing more and more art houses sort of approach that situation. So what is your read now if you were to say compare it to where we were a couple months ago in terms of the state of things, does it seem like we're heading in a positive direction? Well, we're definitely in a positive direction. Let me say from the start as a caveat, uh, William Goldman's famous phrase about the film industry, nobody knows anything or whatever the exact <laughs> words were. This is not a clear period. This is totally uncharted. Yeah. Uh, anybody who tells you that they know what's going to happen is either has a vested interest in it or is naive. Um, so, I mean, I've been in the industry for multiple decades. I've been doing this as an analyst for almost a decade. And I say up front, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Uh, I think the, the the point of how it's different from two, three months ago I expected we would always get at this point. I didn't think that uh, we were going to be in a situation that theaters wouldn't reopen. Uh, there's enough demand. I mean, there certainly is enough infrastructure and interest around the world that the United States wouldn't be set apart. Uh, and there's just too much vested interest in existing theaters, not just from the exhibitors, but also landlords and, and communities that, that they draw people into, uh, as well as the fact that so many of the structures can't be used for anything else. This was always going to happen. But if you're going to go from the perspective of two, three months ago, I think every day that theaters don't get open uh, has makes it more difficult for business to return as normal because business from the start has moved on. The business from the distribution side has moved on. They found uh, alternative ways to play movies, and uh, uh, you know, there's that. That's been the real, real stress that. You can't wait forever, apart from the financial losses that so many companies are taking, that, right. that the audience has shifted and, and their expectations have shifted so much. But let, let's look at this on, on a more specific level, because on the one hand, you have the multiplexes that just need the the scale to really make this worth the effort. But then you have the, the art houses where, you know, until... A few weeks ago, it was unclear how New York City art houses would have any way forward. Then they were given 25% capacity, which still isn't a real way forward because you're not making money when you have, you know, say 300 seats in a theater and you can only fill 25% of them. 
So for the multiplexes, what needs to happen for the theatrical business to seem sustainable again? And then we can dig deeper into these smaller players. Well, I think, you you know, the capacity issue outside of a select number of places is not an issue. Most of the country is not at 25% anyway, if they're open. And most, uh, uh, you know, if, if there aren't enough seats in an individual auditorium, multiplexes the capacity of playing on multiple screens so they can make up for that. Uh, yeah. And at first, there aren't going to be, you know, assuming Black Widow goes on May 7th, it's going to be close to what the situation was in and at last uh, September, it can have eight screens in a 14 complex. So uh, that that as uh, you know that, that in Manhattan it, it did make a difference. Uh, I it, what's going to have to happen uh, is that uh, either studios are going to have to you know restrain from utilizing the uh, window, the decreased window gaps that they have, which is very questionable. Uh, and that that the public accepts that, that movie theaters are the prime place to come back and see movies, which is well. I, mean, I, I thought it was interesting that uh, Tom and Jerry. I mean, in in a relative universe in which box office numbers are not huge, Tom and Jerry did pretty well, even yeah. though it was on HBO Max. And it right. does seem like you know before with day and date when you were talking about putting a movie at IFC Center that people could watch at home. Well, a lot of people just are in the habit of going to a movie theater to see an art house movie. And they maybe they know it's on VOD. Maybe they don't. They have a relationship to that experience. But when it, the assumption before this was a bigger studio release, they, they don't have that relationship. If they can watch it at home, they're going to watch it at home. And it seems like the Tom and Jerry case study, is, as small scale as it was, would imply otherwise. So you think about something like Black Widow, it does. It does make me wonder if there's that's a, there's enough of a demand to see that movie. I mean, certainly we haven't had something on that level of excitement come into theaters in a year and change. So maybe even with a diminished window, it could still deliver theatrically. I mean, that that must be the gamble that Disney is is talking through right now, right? Right. And and, and again, to the point of we don't know anything yet and what's going to happen. Uh, my sense is that a great deal of the regular movie-going audience when for every movie that comes out is going to, most people, many people are going to ask the question, when will it be available at home? Why won't it be available at home? Mm -hmm. One of the most dramatic shifts that happened in the business in the last year is that for decades, there has been, and everybody does everything the same way with nuances for different types of films, in releasing films. Now, it's, it's varied from what happened pre-Jaws to what happened after Jaws. It's, you know, changed over the years. But generally, any given movie in the past, a Black Widow, every studio would have released exactly the same way. That's not the case anymore. Now we're in a situation where each studio has its own model, its own alternatives. Mm -hmm. uh, and... You know, that's causing confusion. I mean, I'll give you an, an example of a close friend of mine who's out, out of the business. Uh, we talk about movies a lot. He, we talked a couple of weeks ago, and he was very upset because um, uh, he wanted to see news of the world. And he's an Amazon right. Prime customer. Uh, and he went to Amazon Prime. And he said, it's 1999. What a ripoff. Why is that the case? He right. assumed he's an Amazon that. Prime uh, customer. Yeah. 
he would be able to get it free. And I had to explain, well, Amazon Prime is a platform. They have their own films that subscribers get, but they also are a platform that, that video on demand films will be available as well. They haven't I had that same conversation. I remember uh, almost a year ago when never rarely, sometimes always when, when the theatrical release was interrupted and I was trying to tell people, you should watch this movie. It's a great movie. And there's only one way really to see it. And then they would sound intrigued and go see that price tag and say, yeah. forget it. I'm not, why would I do it? Which is ironic because if it was a couple, you know, they'd be spending that or, yeah. or more at the theater, but that's the way it goes. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and nobody's certain about this. I wrote about it on Sunday. Raya and the Lost Dragon was disappointing. Uh, you know, yeah. For a bunch of reasons, maybe because it came out the week after Tom and Jerry. It came out the same weekend that SpongeBob went on premium VODs. There was more competition. It was less known. But in my mind, I have the sense that when Disney Plus had Soul free for subscribers on Christmas Day, that putting Raya at $29.99 yeah. uh, price offended a lot of people. And, you know, did they vote with not purchasing it and then not going to the theaters because you can look now on Disney plus, I believe, I know Mulan is available for subscribers. I'm not sure if soul is yet. Yeah. Raya is going to be available on Disney plus in a you know, couple of months for free. Yeah. And it's also not, I, so I, I went as an experiment. I, I watched it that way. I paid the extra money. Uh, I didn't have the, you know, the chance or the bandwidth or whatever to, to get it through the other avenues that I have as a privileged writer who can get that kind of access so I, I tried it out and what i was thinking when i was watching it is it's a good movie in parts it's not exceptional in a way that felt like it it justifies that kind of investment and that's that seems to be the challenge here you have to have such a strong desire for this particular experience and when that experience is framed with all of these other options why would you spend the extra money? I mean, something like that where it's on Disney Plus. Well, if you're already a subscriber and you want to watch something with the, your kids, you have a huge catalog of options. So a new release is almost irrelevant. Right, exactly. And, and this same weekend, Coming to America, uh, the sequel came yeah. on Amazon Prime for free. Yeah. Uh, the, and the, the anecdotal and somewhat uh, from, from companies that, that claim that they have access to these things uh, say that it was the biggest, uh, most watched movie on any platform uh, in the last year uh, on its debut debut weekend. Uh, you know that satisfies people. It's not necessarily a family film, although I suspect a lot of families watched it. Uh, that's that's the things that 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 level of stuff is up against. So then you throw in theaters coming back again. Yeah. Uh, how many? How, what's going to be people's mindset? Uh, I don't buy the idea that open the doors and people are going to flock in because they're so happy. I do buy yeah. the, the substantial audience that feels that way, but I also suspect there are a lot of people, once they can start doing other activities, you know, after spending a year watching more movies than they ever have in their life, lives, mm -hmm. and then spending indoors is going indoors to see a movie mm -hmm. going to be as high a priority. It may be, we don't know yet. Uh, uh, is uh, uh, so, yeah, and again the the problem for the theater business is that despite all the hype of 2019 being a record year, which is only based on inflation, uh, it was an okay year compared to the previous year, 
but in terms of total tickets sold, things have plateaued for a while and they're quite a bit down from the peak. Uh, it's not a business that if you had said a year ago, uh, business will be down 20%, uh, total blocktos will be down 20%, that would have been a disaster. Uh, now, if it's down 20%, it seems seem like a miracle. Uh, yeah. But hope. the problem is that the finances remain the same. Yeah. Now, the way it works is the possibility, the reality that quite a few, you know, sticking with the the, the first one uh, studio theaters, that a whole bunch of them aren't going to reopen. Uh, yeah. And there'll be fewer theaters. If it happens in a dramatic enough fashion, and it's going to be a case-by-case situation, since for the most part, closing uh, wide play theaters are located where fairly close within driving distance, there's another one playing the same movies. It's possible that those theaters that, that survive, that continue, might pick up enough of that business so that their individual finances won't be as badly affected if business goes down 20 years. That's, so, that's, that's another unknown. Yeah, but so so that leads into I think this fascinating contrast with the art house market because the numbers are just so totally different. You're you're dealing with probably you know less overhead, but also just a different kind of model in terms of how these movies make money and how theaters stay in business here in New York, which got the green light a week before uh, March fifth. That on March fifth theaters could reopen. It's it's been a very gradual process because again, it's if you don't have a a lot of seats and twenty five percent isn't enough. If your theater workers can't get vaccinated, which so far they can't, it's it, it's not necessarily worth the risk. Uh, but we are seeing moves toward uh, sort of experiments with reopening. IFC Center, Film Forum around the corner. We expect MoMA and Lincoln Center sometime soon will will give us their timelines and. The way in which movies come out that are, you know, awards contenders, international cinema, they're, they, they're very reliant on uh, the New York market. It, just historically, that's always been the case. What's it going to take for the New York market to sort of regain its foothold and launch films in any way like it, like it could before? Well, uh, it, it, again, you know, it's, it's New York and L.A. that have simultaneously set the tone and usually for most films the same date uh although there's much you know greater differences there are uh, there's more seating in la uh at the appropriate theaters uh yeah. the uh uh the the big question for specialized specialized has operated on a different model it's at the start that that there have been set models that movies have been released but nuances within them one of the nuances is most people are aware, is that a specialized film, i.e. Nomadland or Benari under the old rules, would have opened up in New York and Los Angeles initially, maybe two theaters. I can you know, almost tell you which theaters they would have been. Uh, and uh, played for a week. Then second week, five to ten other cities joined in, mostly exclusively. The third week, a little bit more, you know, depending on whether would they open up around the holiday and trying to maximize the holidays or where they were in relationship to Oscar nominations, yeah. they expanded. Uh, so it was a slow, a slow, gradual process. Now that's at odds with this new expanded window model. 
uh, uh, Netflix of all people sort of set the tone with this when they set up a three-week window on their um, awards contending films in past years like Roma and Irishman, where they opened up in New York and LA, I think one case San Francisco, three weeks before their date, added some theaters two weeks before the date, more one week before the date, and continued adding on theaters when the film uh, went on Netflix. Uh, that model, and you know, the, those weren't expected to gross all that much. It was, you know, it's not a, 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 a prime player and, and, and a lot of uh, exhibitors are not, well, not so much the specialized ones resisted that. Um, now, and the reason for doing that is that it allowed the possibility without mass TV buys to build up word of mouth, to be able to have, uh, uh, one of the things affecting my job is that, that people look at per theater averages and, and that's an apples and oranges comparison so much of the time, but distributors are afraid to quite often to open up in five or six theaters in the first week because New York and LA do so much better than everybody else and people will misinterpret them. Uh, I, I hope all that stuff goes by the, the side. That, that, that can be very, even though you know, it relates to what I write about, that can be so misleading and can, can hurt the overall situation. Uh, I think it, it, it's a good thing if Specialized learns how to use marketing. I mean, a lot of the companies know how to do this a lot, but knows how to do social media and you know makes an attempt to uh, uh, to elevate this that they will speed up the 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 weeks that they will go more theaters the first week double or triple the number the second week hmm. wide the third week uh for you know the major films uh, so then the concept of the platform release has to evolve basically is yeah what you're saying. yeah yeah and that's been very static i mean there have been some minor increases in that but it's it's you know, and so much of the best grosses come from the time of the year of the awards, and that's been so tied in with when the nominations are and maximizing, you know, going wider at that point. Uh, usually, in, in recent years, by the time the award the awards come in late February, early March, films are mostly uh, out on at least BVOD, which is after seventy seventy two days. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, but this year is entirely different. There's, you can't yeah. make any sense out of this year. Um, the uh, uh, except that everything that's going to be nominated in all but possibly foreign language film, and I'm not sure about that. Everything by the first of April will be available to see at home uh, uh, after the nominations before the awards. That's unprecedented. Which is um, awesome, by the way. I mean, honestly, yeah. that's always been this frustrating challenge. It's like you want to use the Oscars as a platform to get people aware of a wider array of options, including films like even something like Nomadland is not a movie that I would say general audiences get really enthusiastic about. But if they can watch it at home, then great. So I'm curious to know what kind of a bump that has across the board beyond, say, the Best Picture nominations. But yeah. that is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. But but again, that's a challenge because, again, the margins for specialized theaters are so small uh, that, you know, it, it, this is the, 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 the way this all shakes out remains to be seen. Uh, if yeah. there are fewer theaters, in some cases, special or specialized theaters may have less competition. Uh, if uh, there, it may be that that 
it's up to distributors, but distributors may try to keep these theaters alive by giving them a little bit more exclusivity over the round the corner uh, uh, wider you know, uh, chain theater. But that's very difficult to pull off because those chains, if a film is successful, provide a huge amount of the income in later weeks, and you can upset them by not giving them a piece of the action fairly early on if they have viable theaters in, in, uh, uh, in many markets. But anyway, that, that, it's, it's a very complicated situation. I would say, you know, it, you know again, there is real danger to specialize. Uh, I mean, the good thing is that the aid packages that have come out benefited a lot of the small theaters uh, mm. because it, you know if, they, if you're a small operation you qualify uh, mm-hmm. I don't believe that that a, a prime circuit like landmark has qualified I'm not 100 certain by that and there's ways that you can have theaters as individual corporations that they might be able to you know it's it's, it's all it's still all being worked it's a thorny out any situation yeah but, but the uh, other thing is, is the, the, that's fascinating about what you're saying is that it, it's sort of can, it, it's reliant on this idea that more theaters could equal more money or more success in terms of the, the way these films launch across the country. But every state is different. I mean, certainly in a weird sort of way, there's an opportunity in, in a place like Texas right now where it's like they're basically saying, go outside and pretend like the pandemic never happened. And, you know, if you could re- release in theaters all over that state, you maybe you have an opportunity, but there are other places where, you know, the mood differs. So it's a very yeah. complex sort of question of like how, just how widely could you launch something? Well, we start off with the proposition that specialized theaters have um, uh, uh, been more willing to play with, home platforms. You know, a lot of them played Netflix. Landmark played uh, Netflix a lot of places. Uh, and so that resistance was already broken down. If you remember back uh, a few years ago when Sony's The Interview was pirated by, by the mm-hmm. North Koreans, it was Hard to specialized forget. theaters yeah. to keep on that and did yeah. a fair amount of business because a lot of the chains refused to play it. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you're talking about a group that, although it's Parasite got an awful lot of younger viewers. Uh, a lot of the, you know, the Wes Anderson film was going to hope for that coming up. Uh, but the dispatch. core audience is still older, and that yeah. audience, you know, two things has happened. They may still be more reluctant to go back to theaters, and unlike uh, a lot of the younger audience, the last year has been a year a learning experience for them for seeing films at home where they might not have 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 ever bought a movie or rented rented a movie from a service uh, in the past. You know, I might, might have had Netflix or Amazon Prime, but the idea right. of going out, you know, that, and it, they've learned how to do that. That's All right, so let's, let's we, that's, that's a big deal. So, but yeah. that, that, this leads into the other thing we should talk about, which is what theater owners have had to learn in the past year, which is how to release movies digitally with the concept of virtual cinema. Yeah. Now, you reported this week on some numbers from Kino Lorber, which, made a little over a million dollars, they're saying, in terms of virtual cinema releases, about a million less than they did theatrically the year prior. But for a smaller company that distributes a wide range of, of cinema from around the world that is not an easy sell, that is that is something. And half of that on some, or presumably something like half of that is going to the theaters as well. At the same time, I got 
Karen Cooper from Film Forum telling me anybody who tells you that these are real numbers is not being honest. And I think that what we're seeing is that probably some really smart business savvy people have figured out a way to pivot to digital releases because especially somebody like Kino that already does that as part of their business would understand it. But for independent theater owners, that's just not the business that they're in. So the question is, just how much do they need to look at virtual cinema as this supplementary revenue stream in the long term when I think most of them are probably more inclined to hope they can just cut it off, pretend it never happened so that people realize like that was a temporary fix and they have to go back to the theater now. Yeah. I mean, this predates uh, the pandemic. Uh, IFC and Magnolia for years have had, you know, a steady supply of films that come out at the same time. Although both distributors yeah. have isolated some of their, their top titles with theatrical potential for, uh, a, a further delay before doing that, uh, right. but yeah, no, it's 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 here. They invented that game. I mean, the, the yeah, before yeah. anybody else was. Yeah, uh, uh, the uh, uh, actually, I mean, in uh, roadside with uh, what was uh, margin call and uh, uh, oh yes, margin you know, call was early on were, were 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 important almost a decade ago. Uh, the uh, how it coexists, it's very difficult. Uh, as far as the revenues, Film Forum, which is such a large grossing place, may not be the best example because what, what they gross by being huge to somebody else. Um, uh, the uh, My sense is it's been better for distributors than it has been for individual exhibitors. But remember that a well-run platform, uh, Lemley Theaters out here in Los Angeles, which is an important local uh, specialized chain, pretty much the main game for its subtitled films, uh, put together a very strong platform. Uh, it's a lot of films, and uh, you know, a lot. If it adds together eventually. On the other hand, they've got a dozen theaters or so, so it's like not. It's not like that's anywhere close to possible to being able to replicate that sort of revenue. Uh, yeah, I think generally because the margins on specialized films, uh, you know, the, the the need to recoup what you put into it is relatively small. That there's going to be incentive for most of the specialized distributors to continue the option of having alternatives. Uh, yeah. It's going to depend on how much people are willing to pay. Uh, we don't know. You know, Searchlight has been incredibly stubborn about giving any numbers on Nomadland and how uh, many views it's had on uh, on Hulu. Uh, they totally withheld more than any other distributor the numbers and theaters on the film, which we've been able to to get from other sources. And you know, yeah. they're not good, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't count. Yeah. Uh, uh, My guess with Nomadland would be Good, maybe not exceptional. I mean, well, I someone might one, get mad that I would guess that, but what yeah, can we yeah. do when we don't see I, that it? That would have know? been my assumption, but I got an email yesterday from, again, I don't know how accurate they are, but a, a service that monitors views from at least some percentage of the audience. And for the weekend, uh, Coming to America was one. Uh, SpongeBob was two. Uh if I recall correctly, no, Nomadland was three, or it might have been five. The, the first coming to America, 
fourth, believe it or not. Uh, uh, so uh, if, if that's the case, it's getting a lot of views and that increases its value to Hulu. And you yeah. know, at this point, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, as, as we should, the conflicts between theaters and studios and their relationship. Yeah. But yeah. that's not the only game going on right now. There's all these other games going on. It's yeah. a game between video and demand and streaming as a model. Uh, and it's a game between, uh, you know, premium VOD and regular VOD for certain titles that can go either way. Uh, it's a game between different streamers and what they are competitively doing from different priorities, different abilities. Uh, there's speculation. I don't know. This is not something I, I've researched, but I read someplace that the reason Paramount Plus was rushed is that overall the company is in play and its value increases if it had a, a platform. Uh, yeah. But uh, if, and if, they're, if that's their prime incentive, it might be of interest to them to you know reach out and purchase a film for a really ridiculous amount of money. Uh, yeah. Now, so they really missed out on not holding on to coming to America, and they sold it off to a streamer a well, year and ago. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean they, they sold it off at one hundred twenty-five million dollars supposedly for a film that cost sixty million, and then they didn't have to spend marketing on it, which then yeah. you know Easy. around the world another fifty million dollars. Uh, yeah. So that's a huge profit, uh, yeah. but yeah, it's it's a that's a loss for theaters. SpongeBob, you know, it waited until April. Why couldn't it have waited another month and gone in theaters? But again, we we had the part of the frustration for me in my job because we don't have access to these figures. Uh, it's tough sometimes, even when you get box office theatrical results, to really say for sure what they mean, because we don't know for sure what the film rental is. We don't know for sure what the marketing is. We don't know if the production uh, uh, costs uh, are accurate. We don't know uh, you know, what the uh, ancillary deals are and how that kicks in. But you have a general idea of what works and doesn't work. What we're left yeah. with right now is to seeing what actions people take, sort of define what's working and what's not working. And even then we're not absolutely certain because there are other motivations motivations for doing things. Now, the reality is a lot of the smaller specialized films, particularly the, the subtitled films, uh, yeah. Parasite, incredible exception, uh, you know, are not going to be more than, you know, in, in, in conventional times, more than million dollar grocers. So they right. may be left relatively untouched. The problem is that the, the core specialized theaters rely on films like Offspring, rely on films like Coda, uh, the rely on films that uh, certainly like Nomad Land. Are, are now becoming these streaming entities. Yeah, like now, I mean, Nomad Land Apple, you know, was a searchlight film, so that's exception. Yeah, yeah. But when they go to Apple or Amazon or Netflix initially, uh, they're going to have, even though there's talk that Apple and Amazon are going to release these films. Uh, the incentive is going to be to get them out and get them out quickly. And if the chains are willing to play them, it's hard to see how the chains can refuse sure. to play Apple and Netflix and Amazon if they're going to be available three weeks later when they're playing Warner Brothers Day and Date. Uh, yeah. Whatever they, well, they can't do whatever they want. At some point, they could run into legal problems. But uh, right. if once that happens, those films are going to be, and the business involved is going to be um, less available 
for the core specialized theaters. And the core specialized theaters survive on the top grossing films and getting as much of their share of that income, uh, right. that revenue as, as, as possible. So, so as much as those of us who might say, you know, New York is a great place to have independent theaters because of all the repertory work that they can show, seeing film form gradually come back is so exciting. But even those places, by and large, rely on first run stuff that might not need this model anymore. Right. Uh, so that's a, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating open question for the future. Before we wrap up, I wanted to get a chance to humanize you a bit because the, uh, the box office that. routine. <laughs> no, but look at you're sitting in front of a Godard poster. You're you are a cinephile, and I think sometimes the challenge with with work work that that you do and that other industry reporters do is that you're you're talking about numbers. You're not talking about art and culture, even though that is tied into these things. I'm curious to know what you've had a chance to see. I mean, the Oscar nominations are coming on Monday morning and uh, our colleague Ann Thompson will have her final pick soon. But the real question is, what do you want to happen? Not how's all the stuff that's happened in the past year going to play a role in terms of the visibility and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, how much have you seen? What are you pulling for? What's a, What are some highlights for you? Well, this is very complicated. We haven't discussed this up front, so this is going to surprise you a little bit. For me individually, one of the biggest aspects of the pandemic is that I've had a greatly decreased interest in movies, and I'm having a hard time having an ability to focus and watch movies. Uh, I've actually started switching to multi-hour reading every mm -hmm. evening, the evenings I have available, and finding that much more satisfying than, than the movie experience. I've seen an incredible number of movies in my life, uh, so there are always more things to see. You could you I, could take a year off and you'd still have a I head could, full yeah, of cinema. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, getting, a, having a break, of certain, I mean, it's, you know, I can live without it, you know, it's like, you know, when, when you deal with mortalities, oh my God, movies are going to be out there after I'm not, not here anymore. Uh, I actually have not, for, as far as the Oscars are concerned, this will be the first year that in many years that I will not have seen all of the top nominees by the time of the, uh, that they come out. And frankly, there's yeah. a film that's in the running for best picture that I saw 20 minutes of months ago and, and stopped. On. And <laughs> I'm, if it was best picture, I, it's just sort of like in my mind, okay, I don't have to see this. I don't have to see everything. It's a very, very tough year. Let me, let me put it this way. I know a lot of people, a lot of people watching, you know, certainly the, the indie wire world internally and externally is very excited for good reason with what's going to be nominated this year. There's a uh, diversity. There's so many independent films. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, I've preferred, these, this sort of nominee to the studio nominees over you know, the recent years, not entirely across the board. I was a huge fan of Gravity. I, I thought that it should have won rather than what, what did that here. Um, think of a world, and this is probably a, a good thought for thinking about how the world, the outside world is reacting overall. Yeah. Would, the world that is excited about the nominees, how would they feel if for some reason, it ended up that only films that had grossed over 100 million nominated for Oscars. 
Which is really the <laughs> well, equivalent. I don't know. It's funny. It's, it's, I don't know if you listened to Tom, when Tom Quinn was our guest last week. He was saying he's on the, this track about how every Oscar contender must report box office to qualify. And I feel like that's going to be a pretty hard bar to, uh, to to get to. But also it's like, what what would that tell you? It would tell you on a regular basis how few of the movies that we get really excited about actually perform for a mass audience. And that's a disconnect culturally. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is a strange year and, you know, I, I, I admire the Academy for making every effort to make sure it happens as it is going to happen. Uh, And they've got a, you know, strong team behind them. The three parts that they may try to do it at union station, which is a spectacular place. Uh, Yeah. It's a cool idea. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean that that's very interesting, but it's 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 an asterisk year, and it's as it would be the other direction. I uh, I think it's hard not not to do this. So that's that's muted my uh, my interest. I think you know, from a personal standpoint, because I spend from October through the awards in my particularly in my specialized reports back when there was a specialized box office report on Sunday, analyzing what the impact and trying to explain why a film's going where it is, how it's doing compared to other films, uh, you know, I miss that. And so maybe there's part of me that just isn't invested in, in the race as much as I have been other times. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I also think that if the best picture conversation was centered on the movies that actually don't tend to generate headlines around Oscar season, which is to say the international films, like if we were all talking about, is it going to be another round or... Uh, the mole agent versus Minari, which could actually get a best picture nominated. It would be fascinating for us because I think even somebody like you, who's maybe feeling okay about not watching all these things might be feel more compelled on a regular basis based on the reminders that are out there. And one of the things we're just getting reminded of is that there's a lot of the movies that end up getting all this attention for best picture. They're not necessarily something that's going to change your life that you need to drop everything and do, and you will get a better aesthetic experience from the book that you're reading right now. So you may as well just go that route. And I, and I do wonder if there is this sort of existential question with the Oscars where it's like, if the Oscars can figure out a sustainable way to be relevant without nominating the biggest movies that everyone has seen for the biggest categories then we'll have a, uh, it'll have a better impact in terms of the kind of films we can celebrate and talk about on a regular basis so yeah, it's, I'm gonna, curious it's, to see it's definitely going to change things i mean this is i'm i'm really befuddled and actually one of the movies uh to make a confession that i haven't seen is tenet uh i'm befuddled that tenet hasn't shown up in the crafts you'd think this is the year and certainly warners and nolan intended this that by being out there you know, being fairly successful, it's hugely success, successful on all platforms. It's more than six months after the film came out, and it's still charting fairly high on a uh, five ninety nine price. Um, yeah, it's uh, uh, that that isn't a automatic best picture nominee, and maybe that ends up happening. Although I don't think. But Tom, I gotta tell you, I mean, this is a, a good note to end on: is that that movie is so underwhelming in spite of everything but at the end of the day quality still means something so however bad this mysterious best picture contender you turned off after 20 20 minutes was it probably was still better than tenant and i i keep pushing for this awareness it sounds it sounds very naive but quality matters at every level of the industry a really great movie that people are excited about can have a 
really strong marketing campaign about it around it whether it's a big studio movie a really small independent whether it's driven by word of mouth or a hundred million dollars that quality element should still matter and i feel like if we don't emphasize that enough it's very easy for that to be an elusive aspect of the equation but it's that that is to me why tenet is not an oscar movie is it's just not good enough no matter how you spin it and clearly they just didn't resonate with people and you have to have some heart and you have to to have some some fan base to to you know to to be nominated uh just to tie some stuff together because i think this is sort of relevant because both tenet and and clearly wonder woman 1984 seem to have disappointed people. Um, people are putting their faith so much that Black Widow, that Cruella, that uh, when it comes out down the line, No Time to Die, uh, F9, are going to be big films. There's, yeah. what if they are underwhelming? You know, how much that is, you, you, you hope- At least one of those movies probably will be, so- <laughs> Well, actually, the film, I, I, the film, I think, is a slam dunk for biggest around the world is F9. Uh, that's, yeah. to me, that has always been the film that made sense to go out first yeah. uh, big. Now, they're set in a situation where I think the three weeks after Black Widow uh, in a holiday weekend in the United States. Um, so, uh, but that's going to be the, the test. But and, and that's sort of, nothing's foolproof, but that's probably a little bit more foolproof. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's, 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 you know, everybody's optimistic and everybody should be optimistic and everybody should be pulling for success. And everybody, you know, certainly somebody like me needs to be sympathetic yeah. and understanding and not compare too, uh, rigidly against past standards. Uh, yeah. even if we point out, you know, shortfalls, uh, but the films have to be there, not just yeah. on paper. And, you know, we don't know that because we haven't seen them yet. Well, Tom, I will leave you to your reading hours, but I hope to win you back at the movies sometime soon, whether it'll be at Palm Springs or, or back here in New York. But uh, we're, we'll get there one way or another. And, and it's great to hear that, you know, you're, you're feeling at least optimistic in context. So thanks again for, for being here. And we'll have to do this again sometime soon, with or without Anne. All right. My pleasure. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.